Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Welcome back to the Gren Zone podcast. I hope you're all doing well and excited for another episode of discussing papulosquamous disorders. Today we'll review a very common condition that you will see every day in and out of clinic. We are talking about seborrheic dermatitis, also known as sebderm. It is not only common, but it can mimic several other disorders, including lupus and precancerous AKs, so we've got some really important content to cover today. So before we get started, let's quick review where we're at on our roadmap of reaction patterns and then dive into a short episode on seborrheic dermatitis, also known as sebderm. We break our reaction patterns into five categories, papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesicular bullous disorders. It's important to remember that many diseases will fit into many categories, but this is still a nice way to start approaching a differential diagnosis for rashes. The first category that we're currently going through are the papulosquamous disorders, which refers to scaly rashes with papules and plaques. We further break papulosquamous rashes into five subcategories. One, psoriasiform, resembling the prototype psoriasis. Two, pityriasiform, which resembles pityriasis rosea. Three, lichenoid, resembling lichen planus. Four, annular, such as ringworm. And five, erythroderma. We've already dedicated two episodes to discussing psoriasis, and we'll be talking about sebderm today. The other rashes in the psoriasiform differential that we'll discuss include mycosis fungoides, small and large plaque parasoriasis, and pityriasis rubra pilaris, also known as PRP. Before we get started with sebderm, I'll mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. As mentioned, sebderm is extremely common, with a prevalence between 2-5% to and a lifetime incidence that's even higher than that. If you're sitting at a stoplight listening to this podcast, there's probably at least a couple people at the light with you that have sebderm. Regardless, it can affect people of all ages, so I will break it down into two discussions. Seborrheic dermatitis affecting infants, which is often called cradle cap, and sebderm affecting post-adolescent adults. Regardless of age, seborrheic dermatitis classically presents as erythematous patches with overlying greasy yellow scale that commonly affects what we call the seborrheic areas, which includes the sebum-rich areas of the scalp, face, chest, and intertriginous areas. Sebderm is caused by a lipophilic commensal yeast called malassezia fervor, which is spelled M-A-L-A-S-S-E-Z-I-A-F-U-R-F-U-R. Malassezia furfur, which is also known as Pterosporum ovale. It lives on everyone's skin but loves to grow on these oily rich areas, so it makes sense that sebderm shows up in these sebum rich areas and actually used to be cultured in olive oil. Some people are more susceptible to Malassezia furfur, which is likely due to the composition of that patient's oils on their skin. People with sebderm have higher levels of triglycerides and cholesterol and low levels of squalene and free fatty acids in their sebum. There are also lower levels of the bacteria P. acnes in sebderm skin. P. acnes converts triglycerides to free fatty acids that are antimicrobial. 
Therefore, if you have less P. acnes, you have fewer triglycerides being converted to the antimicrobial free fatty acids. Therefore, Malassezia furfur can grow like crazy and cause what we see as sebderm. This inverse relationship between malassezia and P. acnes growth may also be due to the fact that there's only so much real estate on our skin for flora like malassezia or P. acnes to live on. So, a couple good quiz questions that you may get from attendings like Dr. Grumpy Pants are... Take a break from dreaming about your next vanilla mango latte and tell me what other dermatology conditions does malassezia furfur cause? The answer is, besides sebderm, malassezia can also cause neonatal acne, tinea versicolor, and pterosporum folliculitis. Another question you may get is, Oh, get this question right and I'll give you a purple participation ribbon. If you see severe seborrheic dermatitis in a patient, what are some associated disorders you should think of, if you are in fact capable of forming any conscious thought? There are two correct answers, one being neurologic disease and the other being HIV or AIDS. People with neurologic disease such as Parkinson's disease or epilepsy may have refractory seborrheic dermatitis for reasons that aren't exactly clear. Interestingly, there are reports of patients with a history of stroke with unilateral nerve deficits having unilateral sebderm on the affected side. As far as HIV patients go, they are more likely to have sebderm possibly due to their immunosuppression. Therefore, their sebderm often improves as their immune system improves with antiretroviral therapy. If you have a patient with seborrheic dermatitis that is refractory to treatment, you could ask about risk factors for HIV such as multiple sexual partners, IV drug use, etc. Besides these associations with neurologic disease and HIV, there are common triggers for seborrheic dermatitis as well. Severe emotional stress, which suppresses our immune system due to cortisol release, can bring out sebderm. Fun fact, our body normally excretes about 20 to 30 milligrams of cortisol daily in adults, which is equivalent to 5 to 7.5 milligrams of prednisone daily. When we're under physical or emotional stress, this cortisol release can increase 10 times that amount, equivalent to 50 or 75 milligrams of prednisone. Stress is no joke. I had a patient who developed severe seborrheic dermatitis that came to clinic in early April, and it turns out that they worked as a tax collector and were having a ton of stress in the heat of tax season. With treatment and getting past the stress of tax season, the patient's sebderm went away. Other triggers for sebderm besides stress include sun exposure, heat exposure, or fever, all of which are similar triggers for rosacea as well. So let's sum some of this up before we talk about the subtle clinical differences between sebderm in infants and adults. Seborrheic dermatitis is extremely common, with a prevalence of 1 in 20 people. It is caused by the yeast Malassezia furfur that grows on all of our skin but tends to affect patients whose sebum has higher levels of triglycerides and cholesterol and lower levels of squalene and the antimicrobial free fatty acids. Sebderm can be triggered by stress, immunosuppression, sun exposure, heat, and fever, and is associated with HIV and neurologic conditions such as Parkinson's disease. 
So let's talk sebderm in adults first. It affects males more often and has a peak onset in patients' 30s to 50s, although it can occur at any age after puberty when our oil glands wake up. Sebderm classically presents as greasy yellow scales overlying background erythema on many locations, including the scalp, upper forehead, eyebrows, glabella, eyelids where it is known as blepharitis, nasolabial folds, in and behind the ears, and even on the back, in the umbilicus, and around the genitals. When sebderm affects the scalp, it can take on many forms that are on a spectrum. Dandruff represents the mildest form and does not have significant erythema. In the middle of the spectrum, you have classic seborrheic dermatitis that we just talked about, and then these plaques can become thicker and are sometimes referred to as SIBO psoriasis because the plaques are thicker than what's seen in usual seborrheic dermatitis, but they're not quite thick enough to be full-blown psoriasis. Sebderm is generally symmetrically distributed, especially on the face, and may have itching and burning associated with it, so don't let that throw you off. Sebderm may cause hyper or hypopigmentation in darker skin types and can also have uncommon complications. One such complication is pterosporum folliculitis, which presents as itchy follicular papules and pustules classically on the upper forehead. Another is that sebderm can be a rare cause of erythroderma, which means that 90% of the body surface area is impacted by the disease. Some conditions on the differential for sebderm on the scalp include psoriasis, tinea capitis, and chronic contact dermatitis. Psoriasis usually presents as more circumscribed, thick, silvery plaques that are less itchy, and patients likely have plaques elsewhere on their body along with the nail changes, so do a thorough skin check if you aren't really sure. Tinea capitis presents in younger kids aged 3 to 7 who don't get sebderm because they're prepubertal and they're not infants. And there are classically broken hairs to go along with the erythema, along with posterior lymphadenopathy. Patients with contact dermatitis may have more paritis and may have also started a new product recently, such as a shampoo. The differential for seborrheic dermatitis on the face includes rosacea, which can often coexist with seborrheic dermatitis, actinic keratoses, whose scale are less yellow and less greasy than sebderm, the malar rash of lupus, which spares the nasolabial folds, whereas sebderm likes to involve that fold, dermatomyositis, whose heliotrope rash is more violaceous than the blepharitis caused by sebderm, but remember, dermatomyositis can also have scalp dermatitis. And then there's tinea facii, which has more annular plaques that are often asymmetrically distributed on the cheek. Let's move on to a patient group that could probably answer these questions better than you. How does seborrheic dermatitis present in infants? It characteristically starts one week after birth as the classic erythematous, sometimes itchy patches with greasy yellow scale that usually resolve by four months of age. It affects similar areas to adults and is classically seen on the scalp, where we call it cradle cap, along with the face, postauricular areas, the sternum, and intertriginous areas. We will dedicate a whole episode to the differential for inner trigo and diaper dermatitis later on down the road. But what else should be under differential for cradle cap or sebderm on an infant's face? Atopic dermatitis is a big one. Atopic derm usually starts later, usually between 1 to 16 weeks, compared to infantile sebderm, which is usually around one week. 
Atopic dermatitis is more likely to affect the face in the flexural areas and is often correlated with a family history of the atopic triad, which includes atopic dermatitis, allergic rhinitis, and asthma. Another clinical pearl is that atopic dermatitis tends to be more pyritic and more inflammatory than subdermin infants. Other conditions on the differential for cradle cap include psoriasis, which is very uncommon and has more adherent scales, and tinea capitis, which affects older infants and kids and is associated with broken hairs and posterior lymphadenopathy. Another PIM question that I've had is, What syndrome can be associated with extensive seborrheic dermatitis in an infant? This is a tough one, but the answer is Liner's disease, spelled L-E-I-N-E-R apostrophe S disease. Liner's disease, which we believe is caused by a defect in the complement system, presents with severe generalized subderm, diarrhea, recurrent skin and internal infections, and failure to thrive. So, how do we diagnose and treat subderm? While it is most often a clinical diagnosis based on the appearance and the location of the lesions, we can also consider a KOH prep or a biopsy when we aren't sure. KOH scrapings may be helpful by showing the spaghetti and meatballs referring to the hyphae and spores of malassezia, although this often isn't done in clinic since it is often unreliably positive. Another question you might get from attending is, So what would a biopsy of seborrheic dermatitis show? Your answer will suffice without any emojis or hashtags. The answer is regular acanthosis, which becomes more irregular in chronic lesions. Remember that acanthosis refers to a thickened epidermis. The regular in regular acanthosis refers to the fact that the reedy ridges all dive down to around the same depth, whereas irregular acanthosis means that the reedy go to different depths. So besides acanthosis, subderm classically shows spongiosis in something called shoulder perikeratosis, which means the perikeratosis is concentrated at the edges of the hair follicles where they reach the surface of the epidermis. So besides a KOH or a biopsy for the workup, remember to consider HIV testing if risk factors or severe disease is noted, along with zinc testing for infants with inner trigo where you want to rule out acrodermatitis enteropathica. Finally, once we've reached a diagnosis of subderm, how do we get these patients better? In general, we use topical anti-inflammatories and antifungals. So let's focus on adult patients first. When it comes to subderm on the scalp, shampoos go a long way. Depending on the severity of subderm, patients should leave the shampoo on their scalp anywhere from 5 to 30 minutes, and patients can apply it to dry scalp and leave it under a shower cap for longer applications prior to rinsing if they have more severe disease. Patients can alternate 2 to 3 shampoos used 2 to 3 times weekly. Over-the-counter options include Selsum Blue or Head & Shoulders, which may contain the active ingredient selenium sulfide or zinc pyrithione. Other shampoos to consider in the rotation include ketoconazole, cycloprox, salicylic acid shampoos, or tar shampoos. For African-American patients who cannot shampoo their hair as often, topical steroid solutions, oils, and foams can be very helpful for these patients, along with medicated shampoos used once to twice weekly. When seborrheic dermatitis affects the face or external ears of adults, topical antifungals such as ketoconazole or cycloprox may be used alone or in combination with a mild topical steroid such as hydrocortisone. You will want to counsel your patients on not using topical steroids for more than two weeks if possible. It is very important also to counsel your patients on the chronic nature of subderm and teach them that they can only control but not really cure their disease. 
Having realistic expectations makes life easier for everyone and can take a lot of unnecessary frustration away. It's also helpful to teach patients that once their flare is controlled, they should do maintenance therapy using their topicals or shampoos on the weekends to keep their disease from flaring. Some other treatments to consider include the calcineurin inhibitors, which include tacrolimus and pomecrolimus, both of which can cause burning as a side effect. For patients with bad sebderm on their face, they can also use the shampoos we mentioned earlier as a cleanser to wash their face. When it comes to treating infants, reassurance goes a very long way, letting the parents know that it will resolve in the upcoming months. If treatment is desired, parents can gently wash the scale with mild no-tears shampoo or use a mineral or vitamin E oil to massage the affected areas and remove the excess scale. If this isn't cutting it, medicated shampoos such as selenium sulfide may be tried, along with hydrocortisone or ketoconazole cream. So that about does it for a quick episode on a super common condition, seborrheic dermatitis. So let's finish with a quick summary. Seborrheic dermatitis is extremely common and caused by the yeast Malassezia fervor that loves patient sebum that is higher in triglycerides and higher in cholesterol, and sebum that is lower in squalene and the antimicrobial free fatty acids. Remember that sebderm can be triggered by stress, sun exposure, heat, and fever, and is associated with HIV and neurologic conditions such as Parkinson's disease. Sebderm tends to affect the scalp of infants where we call it cradle cap, and for adults, it also loves the scalp and the ears, glabella, eyebrows, and nasolabial folds. For all ages, sebderm can also affect the intertriginous areas, the upper chest, and even the back, umbilicus, and genitals. It is usually a clinical diagnosis, but biopsy will show acanthosis, variable spongiosis, and shoulder perikeratosis. Treatments for adults include a variety of shampoos, including selenium sulfide, zinc pyrithione, ketoconazole, cycloprox, and tar shampoos, along with topical antifungals such as ketoconazole and mild steroids such as 2.5% hydrocortisone. Infants can be treated with similar treatments, but we usually take a more conservative approach and start with gentle no-tears shampoo or mineral oil or vitamin E oil massages before we reach for the medicated shampoos, the topical steroids, and topical antifungals. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.